this morning I want to teach on a topic that um, I want to teach on a topic, or more specifically, a place and a people, Israel. Uh, this is a topic that some would mistakenly consider to be merely political. However, for the believer, it is not a matter of political. It is actually a matter of biblical. You see, uh, in this Bible that I hold in my hand, the word Israel occurs 2,583 times in 2,306 verses. Suffice it to say, it's a major topic. It's a major topic of our objective and ancient scriptures, well before the rise of our subjective and modern politics. Not to, not to mention our partisan divides on everything in the culture from Israel to COVID masks to elections, to systemic racism, to Hunter Biden's laptop, to, 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 you get the idea. We are bipolarized and politicized as a culture. That said, as the Church of Jesus Christ, we welcome political divides, specifically on non-moral issues in our churches. We want to be a church that has gas stoves and electric stoves, cat lovers and dog owners, five times boosted and never vaxxed, anti-vaxxed to the walls. We want both. We want people who think the election was stolen. We want people who don't think it was stolen. We want Packers fans, Bears fans, Cowboys, 49ers, vegans, carnivores, Popeyes, Chick-fil-A. We want it all. However, when it comes to moral issues and biblical ones, we do draw lines. On issues of liberty of conscience with regard to different political opinions, we hold together and we do so in the bloodline of the Messiah who lived and died for us and who unites us and who calls us to submit to His Word. Speaking of His Word, would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12? Today's message is going to be a, more of a, a systematic and pastoral message than a usual expositional style verse-by-verse -verse study. So we're going to be covering a lot of biblical ground and to help with that, I will be using the PowerPoint to throw up different verses so that we can have the text and look at different texts and move quickly. The title of my sermon this morning is Israelology. Today's message aims to be a ology, that is, study of Israel, hence Israelology. If you picked up the Bible and you began reading from the beginning, it would not take you long to realize that the God of creation has a special relationship and mission with the ancient people and place of Israel. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, opens with God creating, and on the heels of his creation, God calls a man named Abram, and he makes this man Abram, Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Genesis ends with the children of Abram flourishing into a growing community. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. The story of Israel has begun. We're in the 12th chapter. There's talk of a land. There's talk of a promise. If you would, just grab with your fingers the whole book of Genesis. Just, just find your way. It's Genesis and then Exodus. If, and, and just grab, if you will, the, the whole book of Genesis and hold it in your hand. A lot of times when people come to the book of Genesis, you can see up here it's not, it's not that big. But a lot of times when we come to the book of Genesis, we are dominated as moderns with questions about creation. We get sidetracked into a conversation about Darwinism and the cosmological singularity and how we got here and whatnot and how we should read this account and what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. We, we, we write books on this stuff. 
And I think it's worthwhile and it's all really good. I'm not knocking it. But what I want you to see is that Genesis 1 and 2 is this much of the book. And the rest of it is this. So the book of Genesis, Bereshit for the Hebrews, it, it is a book that is dominated by, holding this chunk, it is dominated by the story of Israel and the patriarch Abram. And, and what the creation account serves then by prefacing this story of Israel with the creation is to say to the reader this, the God of Israel is the God of creation. You see, many ancient religions, they had tribal uh, deities. So, you know, the god of this land over here is the god of this, and the god of these guys over here is the god of this, and the god of these guys over here is the god of this. But this text is making an assertion that was radical in the ancient world of monotheism, that there is one god who is. And there are gods that men invent, and the two are not the same. And further, the, the God who has revealed Himself through this people in this place that we call Israel is not just a tribal entity for those people, but this is the God of creation. And the story of creation as it begins in the book of Bereshit in Genesis is a story of unrequited love. God creates the cosmos. He creates the planet. He puts these creatures that we call humans in the planet. And they're made to be image bearers of Him. They reflect Him. They serve Him. They're made to know His love. And they reject His love. They reject His will. They rebel against Him. Paradise is lost. Things move from life into death. Things move from harmony into disharmony and dysfunction and divides and brokenness and darkness. And so the book of Genesis then tells the story of how God intends to bring paradise back through a people in a place through this patriarch, Abram, he's got a plan that he is going to unfold. As I said earlier, we get to the end of the book of Genesis and we see this people coming to fruition through this patriarch, Abram. In the next book of the Bible, it opens with this flourishing community, however, in trouble, enslaved. And God appears as an abolitionist to rescue the slaves in a miraculous underground railroad through the great prophet Moses. The prophet speaks of God as the God of creation. And he speaks of God as the God of Israel. Draw your eyes up here at Exodus chapter 5. And afterwards Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I, I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. The language strikes modern Westerners as weird. God is the God of the Hebrews? God is the God of, of them? I, we're a multicultural society. We like to think that, it, you know, if, if, if something isn't for everyone, then it's got to be bad. It's got to be wrong or something. You know, it should be for everyone, especially when it involves different ethnic groups. We're sensitive to that, and rightly so. But here is God calling and creating a specific ethnic group that is to identify with him in a unique way. What is all of this about? Well, that's what I hope to unpack this morning as we take a dig, a deep dive into Israelology and the scriptures. It is timely for us to study this topic as the land of Israel and the people of Israel are currently at war, which adds to the feeling for many that this topic is political. We've, we, you know, we've been dedicating uh, times of silent prayers in our worship services in weeks past with this month. Churches have been active in sending aid to those who are suffering as a result of the war. 
Mind you, the, the, the war actually stands to do more damage than just the physical suffering, and it will not be limited to that small area of the Middle East. Oh no, this will ripple all the way around the world beyond physical realms as real spiritual forces of darkness will and are using these material forces to not only attack people, but God Himself. Thousands of God's image-bearing humans in Gaza and Israel have lost their lives. Mind you, this is not a Palestinian versus Jewish matter, for in the land of Israel there are image-bearers wide across the board. We have uh, humans and groups that are also suffering beyond this. The Druze, the Caucasians, the Ethiopians, the Armenians, the Egyptians. There, there are so many ethnic groups that are caught in the crosshairs of this. This is not Palestinians versus Jewish people in terms of ethnic groups. The war began on October the 7th with a coordinated surprise attack made by various militant terrorist groups and individuals out of Gaza who impaled thousands of rockets and sent armed soldiers from Gaza into Israel, slaughtering innocent people, taking hostages, and doing so under the leadership of the terrorist political group known as Hamas. Speaking of Hamas, if you have your Bibles open still to Genesis, and I hope you do, draw your eyes at Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. I told you Genesis is a story of unrequited love. I told you that the God of creation is the God of Israel, and so the beginning of Bereshit Genesis is making that connection for us. The story of unrequited love comes to its, its head as God looks at the creation, and He's going to pour out a judgment on the, the earth through the prophet Noah. We read in verse 11 of chapter 6 that the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. What is interesting to note here is that in verse 11 of Genesis chapter 6, we actually have this Hebrew word, Hamas. And it is a word that means, in the Bible, violence. The ancient biblical word for Hamas is one that meant violence. Now, of course, modern Hamas is not interested in definitions from the Bible. Ironically, in many cases, uh, these terrorist groups take concepts and words from the Bible and flip them on their heads. In this case, Hamas has flipped the meaning of the word violence into a phrase for liberation. If you didn't know, Hamas is an acronym and the acronym, uh, as we translate it over into English, means something like the Islamic Resistance Movement. Let me emphasize here the word Islamic and this acronym. To note that this war is not merely about ethnic groups or about a land, this war is also about religion. Specifically an ancient version of historical Islam that is thoroughly anti-Jewish and has called for the death of non-Muslims. To quote from the Holy Book of Islam, the Quran in Surah 9.5, so that when the sacred months have passed away, slay the idolaters wherever you find them, and take them captives and besiege them and lie in wait for them in every ambush. Quranic apologists will claim that this verse uh, isn't what I'm suggesting it says, but rather this is about self-defense. You know, you got to defend yourself, and, and that the context is about pagans in a time of war, and you got to defend yourself. But note that it says when the sacred months have passed, which means that this is not a time of war or them being under attack. If they were, the Quran commanded them to defend themselves so that there wouldn't have been waiting. Just get to it and defend yourselves. Let's consider another example, Surah chapter 9, 28 and 29. O you who believe the idolaters are nothing but unclean, 
fight those who do not believe in Allah, nor in the latter day, nor do they prohibit what Allah and His Messenger have prohibited, nor follow the religion of truth, until they pay the tax in, a comp in acknowledgement of superiority, for they are in a state of subjection. It is clear from their holy scriptures uh, that Jews and Muslims were, uh, were to be fought, were to be killed, were those who were permitted to be alive if and only if they were in subjection. This is the goal of Islamic resistance. This is the goal of Hamas. The founding charter statement of Hamas on August 18th of 1988 makes it very clear. It begins with a phrase, in the name of the most merciful Allah, and explicitly states that, I quote, our struggle against Jews is the very great and very serious, and it calls for the destruction of Israel and the establishment of the Muslim theocracy, specifically through jihad. That is by physical force and by any means necessary. Article 13, I'll put it in front of you, of their charter says there is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are all a waste of time and vain endeavors. The charter commands its reader to, and I quote, stop uh, disputing the sovereignty of Islam in this region. It further adds that renouncing any part of Palestine means renouncing part of the religion of Islam. The charter quotes Ayah al-Baqara 2, 120, but the Jews will not be pleased with thee, neither the Christians. Thou shalt find no patron or protector against Allah. The charter is genocidal. This organization has stayed its course. If you go to the Anti-Defamation League website, they have a full page that just chronicles ongoing, ongoing, ongoing defamation against, against Jews and non-Muslims. I know this is not politically correct in our day to bring up Islam's violence, I, I'm showing you examples, how, however, of ethnic cleansing inside of their holy book. It's also inside of the holy writings of the Hadiths. I heard the Messenger Allah saying, you, that is to the Muslims, will fight against the Jews and you will gain victory over them. The stones will betray them. O Abdullah, slave of Allah, there is a Jew hiding behind me, so kill him. This is often explained in, uh, uh, in Islamic commentaries as being specific to the end times, that this context is a part of Islamic eschatology. And speaking of end times and earlier noting how Islamic texts and terrorist texts tend to take things out of the Bible and flip them on their heads, I would be remiss not to mention to you that when you study Islamic eschatology, their messianic figure is the complete opposite of our messianic figure. In fact, their messianic figure actually matches the antichrist figure of our eschatological texts, who comes to kill the Jews. I, I mean, when, when people are watching the news and they want to paint this as like, oh, Palestinians versus Israelis or whatever, or this against that, like you, you don't understand your history. This is old religion. This is old world. They are not thinking in the modern categories that we are thinking of. Their, char their charter is very clear. Their texts are very clear. Further, if the Quran and the Hadith are not sufficient, just look at 14 centuries of killing. Islam did not spread out of the Arabian Peninsula or cover Morocco to Indonesia with peace and love. Uh, you, you could ask the conservative estimate of 80 million Hindus who were killed during the conquest of India. You could ask the cultures of North Africa, oh, remember Carthage? utterly destroyed with the spread of Islam. You could ask, but of course you can't because they're not here. And this isn't just ancient history. This is going on today. You could ask the Yazidi Christian Nigerians. 
You, you, could, you could talk to others who are in the, in, in the crosshairs of this stuff. It is still going on. Hamas is just one example. And as it relates to this war, I think we really need to make this a matter of Hamas and not Jewish people versus Palestinians. Um, this is an issue of Hamas. Uh, further, we need to make really clear and check the whataboutism and whataboutery that we see in the media, blaming innocent, dead Jewish people for this because of alleged abuses of Israel's government on limiting water or electricity or prior disproportionate responses to terrorist attacks or whatever. There is no moral equivalent between Israel and Hamas. Israel never sent armed soldiers on paragliders across the border to kill children and take hostages. And this is why it is crazy in our media when we see, for example, the BLM in Chicago posting on X, uh, rest in peace Twitter, on X, the graphic of the paraglider with the Palestinian flag and the words, I stand with Palestine, seemingly celebrating Hamas's killing of innocent Jewish people. And oh, the irony that Jews marched in Selma and stood with the black community in solidarity with George Floyd and more. If only this nonsense were not limited to a rogue BLM chapter, it goes viral on college campuses and in social media. In fact, Anti-Defamation League has a full page documenting in this article, fringe left groups expressing support for Hamas's invasion. Again, there is no moral equivalence here. Regardless if one thinks Israel's policies such as restrictions on movement, restrictions on electricity or water, settlement expansions, the construction of a separation barrier, um, you know, past skirmishes, regardless if you think those have created something that resembles an apartheid or an open prison, regardless, there is no moral equivalence. Jewish people have never flown on hang gliders and mowed down Gazans. In fact, Jews aren't even allowed to live in Gaza. That said, 21% of Israel is Palestinian, not to mention the other ethnicities that I rattled off a moment ago, and, and the other nationalities that inhabit the land. Bottom line, the so-called Israeli-Palestinian conflict is an issue with Hamas. It is an issue with old religion and old beefs. And it is complicated by a long-standing and deeply rooted dispute between Israeli and Pal Palestinians over issues related to land, identity, sovereignty, stereotypes, and complex historical narratives. Uh, there are numbers of reasons why Israel and Palestine don't get along, and the conflict is really complex. Not to mention things are complicated by questions that we have about, hey, why didn't the Iron Dome work? Um, what about the rumblings uh, the day before? Is there internal Israeli political and military breakdowns? Uh, what about the involvement of the industrial war complex and people making money off of this stuff? Seems like Tony Stark is, is moving over there. What's going on here? And what about the other nations, Iran and other forces like Hezbollah? So again, this is highly complex. But what is not complex is decrying Islamic Hamas. Further, what is not complex is what the Bible explains about Israel. So let, let, let's get out of the news for a bit and jump back into the ancient text and let's get into some Israelology this morning. I want to be careful to distinguish uh, between ancient biblical Israel and the modern rumblings today. Uh, to be sure there is overlap there, but w w this is, as we're getting into the text, we're getting with the establishment of ancient Israel. And, and man, the, I was at the store just y yesterday, and right, like it's, I, I haven't bought one of these in a long time, but I was like, I, I just, it's a great prop to show you guys. I mean, like it's in your face everywhere. And it's so disheartening. I mean, I got, I'm flipping through this thing, there's just pictures of, you know, kids and bloody faces and, 
you know, and, and just trauma and the rest. And, and then Will and Jada, they're not doing well, right? <laughs> poor Will, poor Will. When is she going to stop? So let's get into some Israelology. I'll be your tour guide this morning. I'm going to take you into the land. We are going to dig into the people of Israel, the history of promise and prophecy. I hope you still have your Bibles open to the book of Genesis. This book contains the promises of God to His people. Revelations of the prophets concerning the destiny of their lives in the entire world because His plan of solving paradise being lost, His, his plan of, 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 of response in terms of the unrequited love, God is like at work through His people in the earth to accomplish His purposes. Look again at Genesis chapter 12. We just read verse 1 and then I digressed. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the ones who curse you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, paradise will be restored through the people in a place with this promise Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abram, who had just arrived in the land of Canaan, to your offspring I will give you this land. Later, if you turn quickly to Genesis 15, 8, you see God expands that unconditional promise. Look at 15, 18, excuse me. God expands that unconditional promise. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river of the Euphrates. Then turn to chapter 17, verse 8. God reiterates the promise from 12 and 15 in Genesis 17, 8. He reiterates the promise to Abraham and adding that the land is irrevocable. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you. God later repeats this promise again to Abram's son. If you turn to Genesis 26, Got to be turning fast. We've got to go fast. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Genesis 26, 3 through 4. The promise passes from Abraham to Isaac. Speaking of Isaac and thinking about the conflict with Hamas and Israel, it is worth noting that in biblical tradition, the Jews are considered to be the descendants of Isaac, and the Arabs are considered to be the descendants of his half-brother Ishmael. In Islamic tradition, after the whole Sarah debacle and when Sarah goes Karen and kicks Hagar out of the crib, Hagar and her son Ishmael are guided to the barren valley of Mecca by God in Islamic tradition. And there Allah provides a miraculous well, a zamzam, to sustain them. Mecca, now in modern day Saudi Arabia, is considered a holy city in, in Islam and is the location of the Kaaba, one of the most sacred sites in Islam which Muslims claim was built by none other than Ishmael and Father Abraham. And they say Ishmael is the son of promise. According to the text in front of us, if you turn to Genesis 26, 3 and 4, you see Isaac is the son of promise. Then turn to chapter 28, verse 13, and you see Isaac, son of promise, passes that promise to Jacob, Yaakov. And Yaakov's name will be changed by God to be Israel. To be Israel. In the Abrahamic covenant, God laid out the extent of the land that it would belong to Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, Israel. And the territory included all of Canaan stretching from Egypt to modern-day Iraq. Several centuries later, when it came time for the Israelites to actually take possession of the promised land, God spoke of the vast area. Let me put this in front of you, Joshua 1.4. From the Negev wilderness in the south to the Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, including all the land of the Hittites. Now, of course, Joshua 1.4 is not politically correct in our culture, 
where everywhere in my feed I'm seeing the hashtag from the river to the sea. That catch-all phrase symbolizing Palestinian control over the entire territory of Israel's borders from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. So, again, ancient world, modern world, okay? We're in the ancient world. I'm just drawing some overlaps here. We read Genesis. To the land that I will show you, God says. On your outline, you have a map so that you can visualize this. God calls Abram, and he speaks about this land and the descendants flourishing in the land. And through that flourishing, he's going to bring paradise back. And he's going to do it for all of humanity. He's chosen this one people group because he's going to make them into a distinct priesthood that are going to mediate for the sins of the world through his promises, by his grace. So God saves Abram. And God saved Abram as he always does, by grace. Abram wasn't running around looking for God. And the aforementioned, uh, you know, debacle with Hagar and Sarah. I mean, Abraham's a polygamist, a sex trafficker. He's from the land of Ur. Ur is known to be a land of paganism. If you look at the verses in, in Genesis 11, 27, 28, you see this, that he's from the land of Ur. The father of Abram is Terah. Ur is a land of paganism. In fact, there's a cross-reference here. Let me... Let me show you the, the land of Ur, and here let me give you the verse in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Sheshem, and he called for the elders of Israel for their heads and judges and officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived in the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. God saved Abram by grace. Abram's family is a lion of pagans. Abram's life is out of control. I, I mean, you, you read the accounts. These aren't hero stories. These are dystopic. He was saved by God out of paganism. God did not wait for Abram to come to his senses and come to him. No, God came and grabbed him just like he does any who he saves. Salvation is a gift of God that no man may boast. And God seals the deal by renaming Abram. Scholars note that the name Abram means the father is exalted. His homeland was known for various pagan deities, so it is very likely that his name is the name of the pagan deity that his father worshipped at his birth. God renames him and extends to his name to indicate a separation from the past of paganism, to indicate that he had been claimed by the true and living God. Naming is a thing that an authority does. God named Adam... He gave him authority to name the animals. Parents, you name your kids. You have authority to do that. When God says, no longer are you called that, now you are called this, that, that's because he's an authority over him. Parents name their children, strangers don't. It's an authoritative act to name another. God names Abram, Avraham. His new name means the father of a multitude. Uh, the reference to the father, Ab, in personal names usually indicated veneration of an ancestor, as I noted, and so his new name designates Abraham as a significant ancestor as it looks to forward generations yet to be born. When God saved Abram, he made him a patriarch, a father of a new nation that God was going to be building through him. And at the time of his calling, Abraham was childless, his wife was barren, and so this is a legitimate miracle. Uh, God also renames his wife, Sarai, to Sarah. And God gave them a child, Isaac. And Isaac had Yaakov. And Yaakov is renamed by God to be Israel in Genesis 32. So the name Israel was subsequently applied in the Bible to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, the 12 tribes that would be formed. This is actually how Joshua continues. If we pick up where we left off in Joshua, then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and I led him through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants 
to Isaac I give Jacob and Esau, and Esau I give Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt, and then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I got you guys out of there. And from Abram to Moses. I spoke of Moses earlier. God the abolitionist, and Moses the prophetic civil rights leader who rescues the people out of slavery. Like Abram, God grabbed Moses. Like Abram, Moses' background was dark. He was not seeking after God, but God was seeking after him. God saved Moses and put him to work. And, and, and his work goes back to that Genesis 12 passage in front of you. God promised to bless Abram and his descendants and use Moses to that end. God makes good on his promises. And so Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness for refuge. And then the Lord raises up Yeshua, Joshua, to bring them to the land of promise where the plan is to restore paradise. It was an inhabited land. It was filled with various tribes, commonly referred to as the Canaanites, in the area that is referred to here as Canaan, or as we say, Canaan. Uh, for example, Genesis 10 and Numbers 34 speak of the land of Canaan, which roughly spread over modern Lebanon and Israel, um, and some, uh, some parts of Jordan and, uh, and Syria. Broadly speaking, the Canaanites uh, as a culture were under the judgment of God because of their perversity and wickedness and violence. Uh, they, were, uh, they were given over to a very violent and oppressive culture, child sacrifice and all sorts of dark things that I care not to uh, revisit here. But God humbled them. God humbled them. God actually used the powers of Egypt before he used the people of Israel to judge Canaan. He sent, he sent Egypt over there. The Egyptians and the Canaanites were known to get into, into battles. And then, of course, you know, as Israel gets over there, God would use Israel as a part of policing a wicked community in the land and redeeming a wicked land and making it paradise. It is worth noting that Egyptians and Canaanites, in, in their skirmishes with each other uh, over the land, have also produced some interesting artifacts for us. Uh, we have Tutmus III, who was known to take tours over to the land and conducted military campaigns against local city-states and rulers. We have references to the Canaanites that are found in the Armna letters that are held in the British Museum. If you ever get a chance to go, make sure you go check it out. Uh, Pharaoh Aken, Akenten, uh, circa 1350 BC. Fast forward to the late Bronze Age. We have a series of upheavals in the land. And we have various city-states and empires, the Hittite Empire, the My Mycenaean Greece, and the New Kingdom of Egypt. They were all fighting for this land. So when Israel gets to the land, this is a place where there's been a lot of bloodshed, a lot of conflict, and a lot of different ethnic groups who hate each other's guts. So Israel's walking into something. Uh, speaking of the new kingdom of Egypt, Pharaoh uh, Mernapath, who reigned from 1213 to 1203 BC, he actually mentions a group called Israel in the famous Merapath Stel, which is one of the earliest references to the people of Israel. Uh, if you get a chance to go to Cairo in the Egyptian museum, you can, you can see it for yourself, um, or you can see it on the slide right here, this reference. This is the most ancient reference that we have uh, outside of the biblical text in terms of the people being in the land. Uh, so when, when people say things like, um, uh, they just got here in 1948 or whatever, you're like, no, no, they go back like 3,000 years, we, we, got, we got stuff, it's pr pretty real. And at the end of the day, when people are having arguments over whose land it belongs to, I just want to quote Leviticus 25:23, where God says, the land is mine. And because it belongs to God, God has the prerogative to give it to whomever he wants and to do whatever he wants with it. It's his prerogative. He's the creator. Um, I heard a preacher one time say, you know, he was, he was sort of waxing on when people say, you know, 
why did God do it that way? And, you know, uh, he should have done it this way. And the preacher says, well, when you get your own universe, you can do it the way you want, you know. Um, he wasn't a Mormon. He was a Christian. But anyway, uh, so Moses sends spies into Canaan. They fear the Canaanites. We have the conquest with Joshua and Caleb. God establishes the people of the land. And then that brings us to David. Fast forward. Um, like Abraham and like Moses, David wasn't seeking God. He was quite the outsider when God pulled him in. You see, David's grandfather was Obed, whose mother was a Moabite, and the Moabites were known for their shenanigans and shadiness. Um, his, uh, you know, his grandmother is a, you know, a former prostitute, Rahab. So his, his family line has darkness in it. And in his life, we see darkness in it. He's a man of bloodshed. He's a man of adultery. He has a harem. He's... He's kind of like Hugh Hefner. I mean, it, it, there's just all sorts of darkness there. And you say, God keeps using people who are really messed up and broken to heal the world so that the glory goes to God and not to men. Because these individuals and these events and circumstances we otherwise can't explain. If I were God and I had my universe, I'd tell you what, I would have picked the Egyptians. Have you seen those pyramids? They're balling out of control. Like, that's the way to do it. You know, that, 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 that community's got it dialed in, but you're going to pick a bunch of homeless, childless, broken, nomads, pagans, and you're going to use them to redeem the whole world? Yeah, that's his plan. And to God be the glory for this plan. As he drives home repeatedly, salvation isn't something that we have coming. We didn't want it. We didn't want him. But he is the God who changes us by his promises and grace. Speaking of his promises, we also call these covenants. The Abrahamic covenant then flows through these other covenants. God promised a land, a seed, and a blessing. Deuteronomy 30, we see the covenant with the land. 2 Samuel 7, we see the Davidic covenant that the seed of David will sit on the throne and usher in world peace and prosperity. Paradise will be restored. A new covenant will be given. Ultimate blessing where God's spirit will be poured out on all people. Moving down your timeline, we have uh, seen, we have seen with the patriarch, we have seen with the king David, we move into the Jewish prophets. David has already noticed he wasn't, uh, he wasn't pristine, he wasn't perfect. David makes a mess of things, he comes under the judgment of God. David's son Solomon also follows in his father's footsteps and makes a mess of things. Solomon overtaxes the people to build a massive, a massive kingdom. He overtaxes... His moral life was a mess. He's, he's got that Hugh Hefner vibe too, mixed in with some Hussein and some, some other you know, bad guys. He's, he's quite a twisted guy. As the kings of each side of the divided kingdom un unravel thereafter him, the, the kingdom rips apart. Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. The prophets are, are declaring to the people, God is going to judge us. God is going to judge us. God is going to take foreign powers, have them go Hamas on us, impale some missiles on us, and hang glide on us, and judge us because we're not walking in his will and way. I spoke of uh, Egypt and the battle for, for lands. Uh, Assyrians sack the ten modern tribes. Again, it's a land that's just known for repeated, repeated warfare. Repeated ethnic hatred, repeated religious hatred, and repeated warfare. Assyria rises up, sacks the ten tribes in the north. Babylon comes in and, uh, you know, kicks down, smacks down Assyria and wipes out the two tribes in the south. The Persian Empire comes. That, the Achaemenian Persian period begins. And we get into this and all of this then paves the way for Rome that comes in. 
and Rome takes over the land, and once again Israel is occupied by the powers of Rome. Rome is, uh, is anti-Semitic to say the least. In the first century, when Jesus steps on the scene, Israel is over the powers of Rome. Uh, Rome has installed a puppet king, the Jewish king of the people, the Herodian dynasty. Herod is an Edomite. He's, he's not, he is not of the seed of David. It's a puppet show. And, and, and Herod is employed, he's a part of the corrupt hegemony of the whole system that's oppressing the people. Jesus comes on scene, he is the true king. The Herods try to assassinate him when he is a baby, but they cannot overcome because you can't stop God. Who not to fight with God? And he comes and he proclaims the kingdom and the promises of the kingdom and the restoration of all things, the renewal of all things. You go to the land and the land to this day. I mean, it's just shaped by, by Jesus' presence there. You go to Capernaum. You go to Peter's house. On, on, on Peter's house, there's a church that is built where people from nations from all around the world have gathered to preach. You go to the old synagogues. You, you go to Magdala. Everywhere you go, you see his fingerprint on, thi on things. You can reject him as king. You can reject him as Lord. You can dismiss his offer of salvation, but you cannot dismiss this historical figure. He said in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He focused on Israel. The 12 men that he picked to be his understudies were all Jewish. And he commanded them, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As we move from Jesus into his early followers, the early church was 100% Jewish. In the book of Acts, the disciples were told by Jesus to actually start building the church in Jerusalem. The, the ministry of the gospel starts spreading out to non-Jewish people, to Goyim, to Gentiles. And by Acts chapter 15, we see the center of the church is in Jerusalem. By the end of the book of Acts, we see it has spread all around the world. But it all began there in the land. It all began there in the land. And Jesus taught his disciples to wait. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray for the kingdom to come. And Jesus taught them that he would return to that land. In the first century, after the time of the early church, there's the first Roman war that comes. Major conflict between the Jews and the Romans in the first uh, Jewish-Roman war. It begins circa 66. Uh, Jews revolt against the Roman rule. The war culminates in the siege of Jerusalem around 70. And during this time, the city was captured. The second temple was destroyed. This is a significant turning part in the exile of the Jewish people from the land. There's diaspora. There's further conflicts. The Bar Kokhba revolt in the 130s. I'll say more about that if there's time later. They are banned from the land. Diaspora, scattering. The Byzantine Empire comes in. And following the split from the Roman Empire into the Western and Eastern Byzantine Empires, the Eastern portion continued to rule the region uh, all the way up until Muslim conquests. So the land then was, was controlled by different people and ethnic groups, uh, many Christians in the land, still some Jews in the land in that time. Islamic empires uh, come on the horizon. You have different caliphates uh, that rise up. The prophet Muhammad, of course, came hundreds of years after Jesus in the 7th century. You have the, the rise of, of, of the militants that I've already described in terms of old religions and jihad. Uh, so, some, some, some in the West respond. You have crusades. Uh, this is often when people will say, oh, but you Christians, you're picking on us, uh, you know, uh, for killing other people or whatever, you Christians. Uh, uh, to which I would say, yes, but the crusades do not, uh, the crusades go against the teachings of Jesus. Uh, you, don't, you don't have a, a promise in the Word of God, a command in the Word of God to engage in this way. 
it would take too much time to sidetrack into the Crusades, but anyone who does anything in the name of Christ in violence is, uh, is, is not representing their Messiah. The Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Turks come in in the 15th century. They ruled it for centuries, all the way up to the World Wars. And then the British Empire comes in. Um, they control the region of, of what we call today Palestine, which includes modern-day Israel and many Palestinian territories from the end of World War until 1948. This period of uh, British administration is often referred to as the British Mandate for Palestine. You have the Balfour Declaration before this in 1917. The League of Nations Mandate comes in. This is where things really start to pop off because you had hundreds of years uh, of the land under the Ottomans and Turks and what have you and different people there. Of course, it's, it's understandable. This thing wasn't going to go over well. Over the years, British authorities imposed and strict, uh, restrictions on Jewish immigration to Palestine partly in response to Arab opposition and partly due to British concerns about maintaining order and stability in the region. These restrictions were a source of frustrations for all ethnic groups involved. The Arab revolt in the 1930s, the Arab population in Palestine staged a revolt against the British rule. You had uh, Jewish immigration going on. You had British responding. There's all, all sorts of conflict and, and pain in this process. Post-World War II developments, in the wake of the Holocaust, there was a significant increase in Jewish immigration to Palestine. I think a lot of anti-Semitism was put on blast and, and people on all sorts of sides could see like, dang, that was crazy. They, those Nazis just tried to kill all Jewish people. Uh, where, do, where do they go? Where, there is no state. There is no place for them to go. So the British mandate gets complicated. There's all sorts of politics in this. You have the Six-Day War, also known as the June War of 1967. This was brief, but it was a significant conflict that took place. The war was primarily fought between Israel and a coalition of Arab states, including Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq. During the war, Israel captured the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip from Egypt, the East Bank, the East Jerusalem from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria. There was a ceasefire. The United Nations brokered that ceasefire on June 10, 1967. Uh, effectively ending the fighting, but not really. People are still fighting and still hate each other and still have wounds and still have scars. The long-term impact of all this geopolitical conflict has shaped the region. The Yom Kippur War, known as the October War or the Ramadan War, was a conflict that took place in 1973 between Israel and a coalition of Arab states led by Egypt and Syria. Uh, the, this, of course, coincided with October uh, and what we saw in October. That war began October 6, 1973, and the new war that has begun popped off on the anniversary of this. All of this to say, all of this to say, throughout its history, the region has been the crossroads of cultures, civilizations, nations, powers, corruption, as well a rich tapestry of history and ethnic diversity and heritage. Heritage. It's a, a very complex thing to step into. A very complex thing to step into. And I would uh, proceed any believer to step into it with great caution with regard to when we're moving from ancient biblical Israel and what we know were God's promises in terms of what's going on today. Uh, we, we, we must be careful in these things. What we, do know, um, what we do know is that Jesus said he was going to return to this land. In fact, on the Mount of Olives. He said he was going to come back. In John's apocalypse, uh, in our prophecy in the Christian New Testament, 
We have reference to there being the 12 tribes of Israel restored, the 12 tribes of Israel being attacked by an anti-Jewish, anti-Christ figure trying to exterminate them in an end times holocaust. And then we see in our uh, sacred text of prophecy the Messiah returning and coming and establishing his people and creating peace. I, I, I had a meal this week with uh, an Orthodox uh, Jewish man. It was a wonderful conversation. And as, I, as we were sharing with regard to our different understandings of things, uh, we have the same end times view that, that Israel will be persecuted, that there, there will be figures who try to kill them and eradicate them, and that then the Messiah, as promised in the Hebrew Bible, will come and usher in peace. We have the same view that Messiah is coming and is going to bring His kingdom. We have the identical same eschatological view. The difference is, when He comes, you guys are going to have to ask, is this your first time here or your second time here? You know, have you been here before? Is this your first visit? And I submit to you that it is His second. And I submit to you that it is good that it is His second because if He would have ushered things in the first time, none of us would be here. You see, He came in His first coming to suffer. He came to be the suffering servant as prophesied in the Hebrew Scripture who would seek and save the lost and atone for their sins in Himself. He would die in their place. And that gift was given not just to the people of Israel, but to all nations of the world. We have churches in Gaza. We have churches in Israel. We have churches in Jordan. We have churches in Egypt. We have people worshiping Jesus around the world. He is the Savior of the nations. He is the Messiah of Israel. The promised land, the promised people, it is all ultimately a message of grace and salvation and blessing. Go forth from your country. I'm going to bless the world through you. This is history, too. Like You see this. This is one of the beautiful things about going to the land, and I'm quite annoyed with everything going on, but I feel bad even saying that because people are dying. But you go to the land. You go to places like Tel Dan and a part of the wall from the times of Abraham. He's woven into the archaeology of the place. Abraham, uh, very likely, this picture that you're looking at, walked through this gate in the wall. It has been preserved for 4,000 years. The section of the wall and the gate contains one of the oldest arches in the entire world. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'm going to heal the world through you. So you have the promise for a place. You have the promise of progeny and the promise of prosperity. Genesis 12 forms the beginning of this thing that we've been talking about, the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant is a promise. And promises, when we make them, they're conditional or unconditional by definition. Unconditional means I'm going to do X no matter what. Conditional means I'll do X if you do Y. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 that you've looked at, it is unconditional. God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Promises involve ceremonies. And the promise of Genesis 12 is no exception. If you still have your Bibles open, turn to Genesis 15 and you see the divine ceremony of God on His promise. Look at Genesis 15, the ancient ritual of sacrifice, the dividing of animals in Genesis 15 is used as a ceremony to seal this unconditional promise. And then in Genesis 17, a further sign of, of, of it is given. Again, as I said, promises involve ceremony. So you have the ceremony in chapter 15, and then in chapter 17 you have the ceremony of circumcision. Circumcision was a well-known practice in the ancient Near East. It was a rite of passage culturally, so it would be a fitting custom for God to use to show in a way that made a cultural sense at the time. Circumcision is a fitting sign given the promise involving progeny. 
Uh, one of my Hebrew uh, professors, Dr. Golden Gay, writes, the covenant sign requires the cutting not of some random part of the body, such as the hair, but the cutting of the part of the male body through which God's promise would be fulfilled. And so, so there's ceremony, there's cutting. Uh, the word for covenant literally means uh, cutting. And so, so, so God has ceremony, God has sign, God seals His promises. God is driving home the reality that while the earth deserves punishment for sin, instead He is giving them ceremonies of grace and reminding Him that He is in control. So God brings him to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through, verse 6, in the land of Sheshem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was in the land we read. And the Lord appears to Abram and he said, To your descendants I give you this land. And so he builds an altar there and to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he, he tells him his name. He tells him he's El Shaddai. He's God Almighty. And so God, as he keeps revealing himself and telling him more about himself as the story continues, here you see this guy rescued out of paganism and brokenness, a guy who cheats on his wife, a guy who's, who's doing all kinds of stuff, and, and God just pours out grace on him and is transforming him and is revealing himself to him. I'm, I'm El Shaddai, I'm Almighty. And the narrative drives this home then as you keep reading the text and you see them brought to the land. Exodus 6.6, 6, if I can quote this for you, and it is up here. Therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with my outstretched arm, and I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and give it to you as a possession. This is, you know, this is a, 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 a love story rescuing someone out of, uh, of darkness and dysfunction and giving them what they otherwise would not have. It involves the promise of the king, kenosis, and kingdom. As already discussed, Jesus was the Messiah. He's Yeshua. He's Joshua who is going to usher in the kingdom. He is, he is the one who, who ultimately is carrying Moses out of Egypt. He is the one who leads them to the land of promise. God eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. And in Jesus, you have kenosis. This is a word that is used inside of Paul's writings in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, to describe that he who is God has, has kenosis. He has, he has laid aside the prerogative of being God to step into this story himself. You see, when God had a plan of salvation. When God promised through the seed of the woman what he would do, when God promised through the seed of Abram what he would do, and what through the seed of David he would do, God didn't send a third party to clean it up. God came himself and God the Son. And so Jesus steps into the story. Jesus steps and is enfleshed in Jewish flesh, Jewish DNA in the Jewish land, and dies, and dies there in the holy city. And all of it was done intentionally. All of it was done intentionally so that he could rescue a people for himself. And if you have trusted him, if you've laid your sins at the feet of him, if you've cried out to him and said, Father, forgive me. Thank you for your son that has come for me, who's, who's making good on all of your promises to your people and has seen fit to include me in this. Fa Father, forgive me. Father, thank you for your son. That's salvation. And that, that cry is the cry of one who has been transformed by him. And, 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 and that cry then continues on as we carry this message of him. 
And when people say, what do you think is the solution? Like, what's, what's going to solve this war? Maybe a two-state thing, or maybe if this guy was president and this guy wasn't, maybe if this happened this way and this way. You know what? We covered a lot of history. They've been, they've been scrapping over that piece of real estate for a long time. Peace is ultimately going to come when he returns again. And as we tarry, as we proclaim Him, we have to be careful with the politics of the land. We have to be careful as we think about you know, our place in this. And we have to love our neighbors as He has modeled for us. I spent a lot of time in the land myself. I've seen with my own eyes terrorist threats in Jerusalem. I've, with my own eyes and, uh, and ears, been in skirmishes with pipe bombs and what have you, helicopters, conflicts, running to, run, running to find shelter. I've been in taxi cabs with racist taxi drivers. I've heard convoluted reconstructions of this history, walls with graffiti that glorify terrorism, propaganda shouted in the streets. It feels, it feels like how I imagined the Jim Crow. Injustice, hatred, fear... And you, you, you don't step into this and, and try to sort of pick sides or do whatever. You step into this as a believer and you want to mourn with those who mourn. You step into it as a believer and, and you cry out as the Apostle Paul did in Romans 9-11. through 11. If you haven't read it recently, read it again in light of everything that's going on. And Paul in Romans 9-11, through 11, he moans that his people are, are lost. That many of his brethren didn't receive their Messiah. And he talks in Romans 9-11 through 11 about those who are descended from Abram and, and, and delineates that just because you are a descendant of Abram doesn't mean that you're, you're saved or right with God. That all of Israel are actually not Israel. And, and he looks forward to a day when the king is going to come and save all of Israel. With the tension in the land today, it's a really a, a wonderful time for us as believers to, to bear witness of him. To, to love our Jewish and Palestinian friends, to pray for the, the, the church that is in both of their cultures and all of their lands, to, 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 to herald that the King is coming again, to speak of His promises to restore and bring world peace. The presence of Israel in the land is ultimately for us a testimony of the Messiah, a testimony of His millennium to come, and a reminder that we have a mission. The church was started in Israel and sent to the ends of the earth. It started in Israel. That's where it all began. I, I think, right, that the devil is in the details. The, the devil has always been in the details of attacking the seed of promise, and he's always been in the details of attacking the message of the gospel. I shared with you earlier that I had lunch with a, a, a Jewish man, an Orthodox man this week. Um, I could feel his anxiety. He has a he has a son who is there, a son who just finished high school and is there. He's, uh, he's, he's Orthodox. He serves in his local temple. When, when, when we had lunch together, he was actually wearing a security guard uniform. All the Jewish men in the temples and the schools, they all have a moral obligation to volunteer as security officers at the schools because of the heightened attacks. It, you know... It, I have friends there. I, I've got, I've got a, one of my good friends. His, his son is 18 and is in the IDF. And I have believers on the other side of this who are trapped in the crosshairs of this. This, this particular Jewish man, we were having lunch together, and, and he, was, he was sharing with me something that I, I thought would be a good point to share as I wind this down. It was actually quite powerful. 
Um, there is a tradition, there is a tradition from Rosh Hodesh Elu until Hoshana Rabbah, where Jews recite Psalm 27 every day. Every day they recite Psalm 27. Every morning, every evening, they recite Psalm 27 from Rosh Hodesh Elu to Hoshana Rabbah. This, this custom goes back like 300 years. I'll spare you the rabbis and whatever, but it carries on today. Roshana Haba is the seventh day of the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, and this year it fell on October 6th. Dudes started flying over, killing people October 6th, October 7th. Let me show you Psalm 27. This is what Jewish people around the world were reciting just before this popped off. The Lord is my delight and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We read this at the beginning of service today. The Lord is the, the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Do not deliver me over to the desires of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. And such is the breath of Hamas, the text says. I would have been uh, despaired unless I w would have believed that the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. You know, prophetically, the, the day before they're attacked by Hamas, their people are actually reading prayers the night before to be delivered from Hamas. And, and with that, and little things like that, that God does in our lives to remind us that He's in control, we, we look at the death, we look at the violence, we lament it. We do our best to study the history and the geopolitics so that we can weigh in with intelligence. But at the end of the day, church, you're not called to become experts on geopolitics. You're called to pray. You're called to pray for the goodwill of the people. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. As the church of Jesus Christ in a time like this, we have to be reminded of the things that we uniquely can do that no one else can do. We have immediate access to the Father through His Son who was sent for us. We must pray. We must pray. Uh, you know, the atheists and the antagonists will say, oh, you, you people, hashtag prayer. Oh, that doesn't do anything. Do something already. I'm like, I beg to differ. Prayer does do something. In fact, I'm going to start praying for you, <laughs> for you to be changed by Him. We must pray. We must proclaim the gospel. By faith in Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, Gentiles become heirs of the promises of Abraham and the promised land. The inheritance of Christ's people will happen at His second coming when He comes to establish His kingdom. Not before. Until then, we Christians never take up arms to claim any inheritance. Rather, we lay down our lives to die, to die, to give our lives. We lay it all down, for He is worthy. This leads to the final point. Prayer is an application. Proclamation is an application. Praise is an application. With the story of Israel hided this morning, we are reminded in the patriarchs and in the people that we too are prone to wander, that we too are broken, that we too don't have it figured out, that God is a God who rescues us and God is a God who is at work and God is revealing Himself and being gracious to His creation. Deuteronomy chapter 7, it's a fantastic text uh, uh, where God just... Uh, let me just read it. I won't even set it up. Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set His love on you Israel, 
or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. You were the least of all people. And because of this, the Lord loves you. That's what God is doing. God rescues the undeserving. God rescues the small to shame the big. He rescues the foolish to shame the wise. Anti-Semitism goes back for thousands of years, and I think it all goes back to the garden where paradise was lost, where the serpent twisted the words of God and made it mean things it did not mean God's word, and where God promised in the presence of the serpent that his demise would come through the seed of the woman. And we've been following that story all morning. The story of Israel is a story of suffering. Israel, the name Israel, actually means one who wrestles with God. I close with this. One preacher said it well. Jerusalem is the nerve center of the world geographically. Jerusalem is the salvation center of the world spiritually. Jerusalem is the storm center of the world prophetically. Jerusalem is the glory center of the world ultimately. Jerusalem is the city of the past, the present, and future. Jerusalem is the city of the, of the past. This city was the capital of Israel under King David. David's son Solomon built the first temple where the Shekinah glory came. And through, through the line of David, Christ would come and be, be, be crucified there. Jerusalem, it's the center of it all. Keep watching your news. Keep praying. Keep reaching out. It's a, it's a stressful situation. But in all of it, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's respond to this Israelology with praise. Let's sing to our God. Let's come to the table of communion this morning. And give thanks for our Passover lamb who bled out for us, who died for us. Let me pray and then we'll enter into a time of song and communion. I invite you uh, to reflect on him in this time, to search your hearts, to pray and respond to his word. Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. We thank you for the promise of people in a place who would usher paradise back. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself as a God of grace and a God of mercy. You, you didn't give us a list of dues to make ourselves better. You gave us your Son to rescue us from ourselves and ultimately from the wrath we deserve. As we come to the communion table, we think of his sacrifice. As we, as we think of this sacrifice, we are reminded that the day will come when we won't need the table to remember Him, but He'll be here and we'll be there, joining with saints from around the world. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Receive these songs of worship. Bless us as we partake in this uh, sacred memorial. In Jesus' name, amen.